Well, there's definitely an interesting uh, zazen before knowing I had to come up and talk. Um, <laughs> haven't had that kind of zazen before. Um, thank you, Jim, for inviting me to to talk and for the sangha and your your presence and practice. I really appreciate it. Uh, these past two years, I've been thinking, you know, these past two years with COVID have been probably the toughest times of my life, emotionally, physically, spiritually. And uh, it's interesting how having the opportunity to talk today about how um, I came to Zen, uh, I feel that it's only been within the past two years that I've really started to get to the marrow of my practice. Put this a little lower. And I've been reflecting on, you know, the theme of the talk being how you got to Zen. I've been reflecting on what are what are some of the moments or experiences in my life that that oh, oopsies, that brought about or inclined the mind to ask those questions that are really essential or pivotal, you know, those moments or experiences that you have that kind of shake you up, ask you, uh, make you ask yourself, what, what is life? What can bring imperturbable peace? brings happiness and joy and so kind of using that as the theme I, I use that to choose some of the experiences moments in my life that I thought brought about that um, kind of turning of the mind um, so I'm not sure if I'm supposed to give a title to my talk but if I were uh, it, it would be the four mind turning contemplations and the reason why I chose that is, is reflecting on my path, I noticed that there was kind of four, four themes, if you will, that kind of kept popping up for myself when I was reflecting on certain experiences. And these contemplations I first ran into with a, a book by Norman Fisher called Training and Compassion. And it's a book on the Tibetan method of mind training. And there's slogans that you use. And these slogans are supposed to help you. They're, they're supposed to make you reflect on um, that there's no real other way to respond to life other than to practice. There's no other reasonable thing to do. And the, the first slogan uh, that Norman talks about is called training in the preliminaries. And there's four contemplations that go with that, and you can use them formally or informally on the cushion or just throughout your life. And uh, they've been pretty special for me over the past couple of years. Um, and I noticed that that was kind of the theme of the experiences that I had that were those mind-turning moments, those those moments where it inclined me to search out the Dharma, to search out something to something to answer those existential questions. Um, so those four, those four contemplations, 
just briefly, the, the first one is uh, the rarity and preciousness of human life. The next one is the inevitability of death. The karmic laws of cause and effect and the inescapability of suffering. And each of those, um, and I did practice with those slogans formally, you know, you start to see certain experiences in your life and, and, and they kind of validate themselves, the slogans. So I thought that would be a good theme to kind of just put down for most of the experiences that I'll be sharing today. So going forth with my spiritual autobiography. Um, the first memory I have actually, first memory of any memories that I have was when I was, when I was about five years old. And I remember it, you know, it, now it feels like it was something out of a movie. Almost like when the, the screen is black and all of a sudden you see this little, little bit of light and it starts to shine and shine and shine and it opens up all the way to a scene or something like that. That's actually the, the first memory that I have uh, of that experience of light and then all of a sudden I, I was there. That's my first memory. Um, and I remember it vividly because it has always been a question for me. I think that was actually my first Dharma question was, what the hell was that? <laughs> and it's interesting because, you know, when I reflect back on it, it's interesting to think that, boom, I was there. I knew my mom was in front of me. I knew the room, that this was my house. That was my dog, Rosie. Um, it's kind of strange to think that I knew that. It was my first, what I would call, mind-turning moment. And throughout life, I would, I would think back to that experience, and I ponder it more and more, but it was one of those first moments that made me very curious about what life is. And it wasn't too long after that that still a kid, probably seven, eight years old, and I only know that because I was thinking about when my favorite cartoon show, Ed, Ed and Eddie, probably went out of business. Um, I remember when I was around eight years old, and I was, I was lying down in bed, and I was watching my favorite cartoon show, Ed, Ed and Eddie, and I remember my first, uh, or, or I guess you could say my recognition. And I, I think at the time my first dog, Rosie, died. And so maybe that's why it was a bit more uh, apparent to me. But I remember the, the question arose in me and, and I just recognized it, that sooner or later I'm, I'm gonna die. And I remember, I remember the sheer terror that I had and the feeling that I had as a, as a little kid. And um, at that time, I only had, you know, a couple, mem couple memories to think about. So that memory came up of when I was five years old, and, and I tried to logically think things out, you know. Okay, well, 
I had that little light experience and I was on the scene. I don't remember anything before that. So when I leave the scene, what's it going to be like? Um, and ever since that night, I've always had that same question. And I think that was my, uh, you know, Linda put in, in the, the email, um, what, are, what are the Dharma questions that somebody might be working with? And that was the Dharma question that I've been working with for most of my life, I think, um, knowingly or unknowingly. That brought me to the Dharma was what what happens to what happens when you die. Um, more specifically, what happens to me when I die? And, and that was my existential question that came up at that age. And a big time jump here, but from about that time up until college. Um, I'd wrestle with that feeling every once in a while. You know, it would come up and, of course, I would try and have some type of distraction that I could utilize, you know, whether it be video games, friends, parties, once I got to high school and college, um, sports, and I think I would comfort myself a lot with answers that I'd, I'd been given from family members that meant well or just other people in general uh, about the question of death. Because it was, it was something that was very apparent to me and, and on my heart most of the time, that question. Um, and I think for when that, when that question came up for me, what also came up for me was the recognition, not, not just the certainty of death, but also the certainty that if I don't... If I don't understand, if, if I can't figure this question out about what happens after I leave the scene, or what this idea of death is, I don't think I'll ever be satisfied with life, or satisfied with, or completely at ease, I would say. I think that's a better way of putting it. Um, so throughout college, you know, I'd ask that question and sometimes I'd get good responses, sometimes not so much, or things that people have maybe comforted themselves with. Um, my favorite one is, oh, don't worry, you have a long time before that happens. You know, the ultimate procrastination. Um, but it wasn't until college that I was actually uh, directly exposed to the Dharma. Um, prior to that, I'd been uh, around Catholicism. That's what I grew up with. Um, the, the doctrine and, and kind of the whole practice of Catholicism wasn't necessarily for me, but I still, I still remember, you know, even though I'd go to church reluctantly with my mom, she required it three days out of the year, Easter, Christmas, and her birthday. So those were my church days. And, uh, of course, I'd be in the back trying to play video games on my phone. But what I, what I remember and what was very uh, vivid for me was when I did go to the church, it was the, the religious symbols that resonated with me. The beauty of the church itself, the songs, the organs playing, 
the, the small rituals that really stood out to me. I didn't know why it resonated with me at the time, but it was something that, that, that I loved, even though I didn't necessarily love the, the doctrine or some of the other practices. And there was something about there was something about the image of Jesus actually on the cross and what it represented for myself at the time, the willingness to lay down one, one's life for somebody else. And I think what really, what I did admire the most was his conviction about eternity his conviction and, and without any fear of death. That's one thing that I, I resonated with, primarily because that was, my, that was my dharmic question. That was the one that brought me to practice. And in some ways, I think I, I envied that, that conviction, that fearlessness. Um, my last year of uh, community college, before I transferred to SF State, my best friend at the time, my childhood best friend, Griffin, um, he was into uh, um, transcendental meditation at the time. And he loved thinking about alternative realities, um, specifically any type of alternative reality that had artificial intelligence in it. So um, I think it wasn't too far of a jump to have alternative states of consciousness. And so he was very much into transcendental meditation and he gave me a book on it. And it was um, the, first, the first opportunity I had to uh, look into what meditation was. I was never really exposed to it prior to that. And he gave me a book by uh, Maharishi Mahesh, if you uh, know who that is. And, and I read the first couple chapters of it, and I was pretty intrigued by it. I, I was kind of hooked on um, what meditation was, and you know they had different pictures and logos, almost making it kind of like a scientific adventure of you know here's your normal state, and if you repeat your mantra, you sink and you sink and you sink, and you get to these alternative types of realities. And I thought that was pretty cool, and I was interested. So I looked online. I found a small center down in, um, on Van Ness in San Francisco that practiced uh, transcendental meditation. They had some teachers that were leading sessions. Um, this was my, my first time going somewhere with the, the intention of learning uh, what meditation was or trying to figure out just what meditation was. And after a couple classes, I was... I wanted to know more, and, and um, so there was a small ceremony that you could do to receive your own personal mantra. And this was kind of a big step for me, because I, I, I think I was on borderline on the fence of whether or not I was joining a cult or not. So um, it was a very, very nice gentleman, and I go into the room, and, and he's got... Uh, but I believe in, in Hindu, it's, it's the puja, or kind of like a ceremonial table, and you have to bring your own uh, 
fresh fruit and flowers for the ceremony. So uh, this being my first kind of introduction into meditation, I was already kind of a little bit skeptical. But as we were going through the ceremony and he was saying stuff in Sanskrit and going back and forth between Sanskrit and English and some type of seriousness to it and the picture of Maharishi Mahesh there. And it was, a, I think, a prayer of gratitude um, towards Maharishi Mahesh. And I was bouncing back and forth between that skepticism, but also complete, complete fascination. You know, it was, it was something foreign to me, but also it intrigued me so much. Um, but it felt like, I remember the feeling that I had when I got my own personal mantra. And I, I remember the feeling of it being like I, I, received, I received a, a stamp, a stamp of permission to enter this trade school of meditation, this craft of meditation, whatever it may be. Um, and that kind of started my journey of, of looking for different forms of meditation, different groups, things like that. Um, but after that, I would practice transcendental meditation, use my mantra as often as I could, different places in my car, you know, before class, uh, before work. And it was, it was, it was my first experience of being able to, to quiet my mind directly. You know, I was pretty fascinated with the prospect that I could, I could change my mind or change the state of my mind through meditation. I could become more compassionate, more loving, more reasonable, more peaceful. Um, and throughout my, after high school, I was a personal trainer for some time. So, you know, cause and effect, this being able to do something and create a stimulus that was always relegated to the physical realm for me. You know, it was always something very obvious. You know, you lift a certain amount of weight, certain stimulus, you create change. I never realized um, or never occurred to me that you could have that same kind of change in the psychological realm. And being introduced to TM, that's where I first had my introduction into that capability that we all naturally have. Um, I realized I could change, I could change the infrastructure of my mind and, and the sensitivity of, of my heart through meditation, and, and I was hooked. I, I wanted to know more about it. So after two years at community college, I went to SF State, and um, I went in as a business major. I failed horribly. I grew a big beard and broke up with my high school sweetheart. And she thought I was losing my mind at the time because I kept repeating my mantra at home. Um, it was a very, um, it was a very interesting time in my life when I first entered San Francisco State. I was definitely searching for what I didn't know, but it was, it was, I wanted something different than what I had been doing. So I, I, I became a philosophy major at SF State, and I focused on 
Eastern religions, Hinduism, Confucianism, Taoism, Buddhism, um, Neo-Confucianism. And it was my intro into Buddhism that I was kind of first directly exposed to Zen in general and, and two other teachers that have been extremely influential on my path, Rupert Spira and Francis Lucille. So they're, they're uh, Advaita Vedantins. And one of my professors, his name was Michael Suttoth, and he, he gave me all the different tools that kind of just flung the door open for me. On his website, I was taking his comparative religious class, and um, on his website, he had YouTube links for uh, videos from Francis Lucille, Rupert Spira, a couple different Zen teachers. And so it was kind of question and answers with particular topics, you know, how does, how does Buddhism respond to the question of death? How does uh, Eastern Christian mysticism respond to the question of morality or things like that? Um, and he was my primary, my primary professor for the majority of the, the philosophy of religion courses I took at SF State. He was also a resident practitioner at the Jacoji Center in Los Gatos, California. And I still remember my first class with him. Uh, he, he walked into the classroom. He was wearing, um, you know, flowy pants, kind of a little bit of a, kind of a button-up, I guess. It was a very kind of hippie outfit, and I loved it. And, you know, walked up to the front of the, the, the class put his Zafu on top of the table, got up onto the table, sat cross-legged and started class, and I loved it. Um, I knew I was at the right place. Um, his name's uh, Professor Michael Sutter. Yeah, and he was at, uh, a professor at SF State. I'm not sure if he's there anymore, though. And at that time, I, I, I idolized him. He was kind of the embodiment of what I wanted to become at that age. He was, you know, intellectually trained in analyzing different religious philosophies, teasing out some of the possible hidden uh, implications and meanings of certain doctrines, and and during that whole time, it, he wasn't he wasn't just um, a philosopher. He was somebody that was kind of walking the walk as well, because he was uh, he was a resident at Chikoji Center, so I respected him for that. He was he. He truly was walking the religion that, or walking the, embodying his practice, not just philosophizing about it. So I took comparative religion, Buddhist ethics, and one of my favorite classes with him was a class on near-death uh, near experiences that also included discussions on selfhood, what are different conceptual understandings of the self, implication of those concepts, and theorizing about what happens after death. And, and he kind of, I feel like he kept on luring me along with possible answers to my existential question of, you know, what happens after you die. So there's, there's two experiences, though, with, with Professor Sutter that were pretty life-changing for me insofar that they, they, they changed the trajectory of my life kind of towards Dharma, towards Zen in particular. I remember about halfway through the semester with him, 
uh, he came into one of his classes and uh, he stood in front of the class and he started crying wholeheartedly. He didn't say a word, just wholeheartedly, unreservedly started crying. And one of his students that he was really close with at the time that passed away, it was a car accident. Um, and it was the first time I'd, I'd seen, I'd seen a, another man completely expose his heart without any hesitation or, or feeling self-conscious about it. Um, I remember it was so honest. It was so, so real. There was nothing, nothing fake about it. And kind of growing up in a, in a household, in a society or environment that kind of glorifies that image of a manly man that doesn't uh, ever shed a tear. My mind was kind of confused at that moment of what was actually going on, but I felt like my heart just recognized the courage that this man had, this, this person had to just wholeheartedly in front of a class of undergraduate students, just let his heart go, just completely ball. I thought it was one of the most courageous things. Um, so later in the semester, he announced that he was giving his, his first talk at the Jikoji Center where he was staying. And uh, I remember thinking, you know, I was, I was so excited about Zen, but I remember thinking, I, I can't believe that there's actually a Zen Center in California about 45 minutes from where I live. And I attended his talk, and it was, a, it was actually a way-seeking mind talk. Um, the only way-seeking mind talk I've ever been to, by the way. So it's been about six or seven years. Um, and I don't remember anything from the talk. But what I do remember was how I fell in love with... Um, I fell in love with the aesthetic of Zen. The rituals, the forms, the chanting, the minimalist living spaces, uh, the directness, the kind of undivided attention that people gave you when they were talking to you, when they were listening to you. Um, I felt like I was in an alternative reality when I was there. And I remember feeling at the time... Um, this is where I want to spend the majority of my time. This is where I want to spend my life. Whatever, whatever this is, you know, this Zen thing, I want to learn more about it and I want to, I want to embody it. And, but there was also, you know, a, a part of me that I think was uh, completely mesmerized by the, the aesthetic of, uh, of the East, of, Asian culture at the Jikoji and, and San Francisco Zen Center. When I was growing up, I played uh, computer games that were based in medieval China and Japan. It was, it was similar to the game called Risk. And you would wage war with different factions in medieval Japan, you know, the shogunate, the emperor, rebellions. And um, to some extent, that was my first kind of introduction with uh, that region of the world's culture. Um, and I thought the samurai, the robes, 
all of that, the, the you know, slow, intentional, ritualistic movements that they would do in the games, I thought it was just so cool. So uh, experiencing that physically at the Jukoji Center was kind of a childhood dream come true, I think. <laughs> I always had a keen interest uh, for Japanese art, kimonos, temples, all of that. Um, getting back to Michael's talk, after his way seeking my talk, I, I, I found the San Francisco uh, Zen Center about a week later. I just Googled it. I was looking for any kind of Zen Center nearby to where I lived. And I signed up for Dokusan with Rosalie and uh, not having a clue what Dokusan was about. Um, I still remember the first time that we, we met and I asked her, you know, what is this even supposed to be? I'm not quite sure what Dokusan is, but I just knew I wanted to be there. And what I also remember about that first, that first time that I met with Rosalie, I remember how nervous I was, how much, you know, I, I was perspiring. I think, I think I was drenching the floor at that time. Um, I was so nervous, but I think what I remember being so nervous about was that I was I was being completely seen. You know, she saw me. I couldn't hide. And even though I was terrified during that first encounter, um, there's something about that being seen completely that stuck with me. So over the next two years, I attended classes, sewed my rakasu, participated in a jukai, attended a couple week-long sessions, and um, I remember talking with Rosalie and telling her that I signed up for a session, and uh, she asked me, oh, are you doing the three-day, five-day? And I said, no, I'm doing the week-long. She said, oh, good luck. It was my first one. Uh, I should have took her advice about starting with the three. <laughs> uh, my first week-long session, it's pretty difficult, but it was really instrumental in keeping me, uh, really making me want to dive into practice even more. It was with uh, Paul Haller and left an imprint on my heart and mind. And there were kind of three different events that uh, kind of solidified my love for Zen and especially uh, Shunryu Suzuki's way. You know, I was exposed to a little bit of Rinzai just through the classes that I took, other forms of Buddhism, um, Thai, traditional Theravada. And there was a, a lot of different paths I think I could have went, but after that first session, I kind of knew that this was this was my path, Zen. And to kind of preface the, the, the first experience that happened at the session, um, my, favorite, my favorite movies at that time were Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, The Last Samurai with Tom Cruise, Gladiator with Russell Crowe, and The Kingdom of Heaven with Orlando Bloom. So to kind of say that I was into uh, medieval warfare, history, and culture would, would be a complete understatement. That's, that's kind of been my childhood uh, fantasy land. Um, 
And I was trying to reflect on, you know, what, what about those time periods? What about those movies that I loved so much? And I think it is also embodied in Zen is how serious they took their lives. How much they valued morality in their character, albeit they were movies, but still that was I was really impressed with that in all those different movies. But getting back to the sashin, I remember one day, I'm not really quite sure which, if you've done a sashin, you kind of know they all blend together after a while. Um, I remember getting ready to leave the zendo, and there's a lot of people there, probably 50 or more. And as everybody was getting up, I just remember seeing all the robes of all the residents there, all getting up in kind of this harmony, this beautiful harmony. And it was kind of like, you know, my peripheral visions, I could see just these rows of dignified Buddhas all rising up at the same time. And for, for a moment, you know, I felt like I was, you know, Anakin Skywalker at my Jedi Samurai Monastery and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. There's a scene in the Lotus Sutra where the robes come off of all the bodhisattvas and they go up into the air and they start twirling around in celebration of the Lotus Sutra. And, and that's what I felt like it was like. You know, when, they, when everybody rose up to leave the Zendo, I felt like, oh my gosh. All these magical Buddhas all rising up, and, and this is this is actually here. This is this is happening. Um, kind of imprinted to me the the power of the robe, you know, the power of even though it's a representation or a symbol, it, it, it meant so much, and kind of putting it into and putting into words now, I, I felt that I, I found a, a group of people that had the same intention as myself, the same, the same want to find, to find answers to their own existential questions. answers that they were satisfied with. The second event at that session that was pretty instrumental for me to keep on going with Zen was, um, you know, it was probably about fifth, sixth day in and I was feeling very calm and my body feeling very relaxed and I had a you know a very nice meditation experience that I thought was so cool and so I immediately scheduled a dokasan with 
at the time it was David Zimmerman. And I was so excited, you know, reading about Satori. It's like I did it. And I wanted to go tell David about it. You know. And I remember sitting down and I remember telling him, you know, about my experience and just waiting for him to say, oh, you did it, you know. High five. <laughs> that definitely didn't happen. <laughs> and uh, his words in response to me about that experience uh, They were so perfectly calibrated, so perfectly timed, and they've stuck with me. And he put it quite bluntly and, and, and kind of to my surprise, it was something to the effect of, you know, that's wonderful. And I'm glad you had that experience, but um, those experiences are meaningless if you're still a jerk to others. And I knew he wasn't calling me a jerk, but um, I could see what he was saying. You know, I could see that. You know, as I've read a little bit more about the Bodhisattva path and what that really means, and and you know, your your vow to continually help others, no matter how much you deepen your own meditation practice. Um, that tone or that approach to practice really stuck with me. And I knew that that was kind of the practitioner that I wanted to be, you know. The last uh, experience of that session, and I really fond memories of it, but Paul Haller, who was the, uh, the practice leader at the time, and, you know, he was so instrumental in, in me feeling at home as well as just getting taught by him indirectly. When I would go to the Zen center, I'd, I'd always make sure that I would sit somewhere near him, at least within eye shot so I could see him, the way he moved, spoke so eloquently, so he moved so poetically, so mindfully, purposefully. He... Um, on that last day, he came into the zendo, and you know, you're all sitting there to, for Oriyoki meal. And I was expecting, you know, the normal people to come out to be able to serve, but it was, it was Paul that came out. And he was serving each of us. And one by one, you know, bow, serving us the food. And it was, I was kind of thrown back, you know, why is this Zen master coming and serving us? You know, he's, he's not on his seat of glory over by Manjushri, you know? And uh, one by one, you know, bowing to us. And I, when he got to me and bowed, I, I just, I started crying. I, I felt so dignified. I felt so much respect. I felt that he gave, he was trying to show me a respect that I never had for myself. Having read a lot about Zen, you know, that um, 
when it comes to the, the topic of love, it's usually a, an, they talk about it as an undertone, you know, it's not something that's very ooey-gooey out in the open, it's kind of um, in the background. But when, when he was serving me that food, I, I felt nothing but love from him. And it was, a, it was a wonderful, wonderful moment. So, kind of continuing to practice over the, the next couple of years, I, uh, I met my beautiful wife, uh, fell in love, was married within a year, and, and she's been my Dharma practitioner, my, my, my Dharma buddy over these past couple of years that I've been you know, saying that it's been pretty tough, and um, felt. So much unconditional love from her. She's picked up my heart so many times. It's felt broken. After we got married, um, I was in chiropractic college for about three years, and uh, my practice kind of waxed and waned during that time. Stuff, long hours at school. I didn't, you know, I take my zafu with me, thinking that I could sit at lunch when I had to cram for an exam. That didn't work. So, kind of going back and forth. Um, After I got out of chiropractic college, I was interning at a place here in Sacramento, and I wanted to get back to practice, practicing a little bit more seriously now that I had the time, and looked online, found Valley Streams, and started uh, going to the, at the time it was, it was all online for the study groups. And I don't think I really realized the importance of continuing with a Sangha, a group of people, until I came here. Um, All of the experiences that I've kind of talked about so far have inclined, inclined me towards practice, but 
Last year, there was a pretty significant loss that I experienced, and it was at that time that I was, you know, really a part of Valley Streams coming here a lot more, and, and so. That loss that I had um, I think I'd just like to say thank you to everybody here I think that's that's part of the beauty of Zen that we all come here and we sit together. And symbolically, we hold each other's hearts, not knowing what somebody else might be going through right next to you. So thank you all for holding my heart, even though you may have not known you were. Thank you for listening. Anybody has um, any questions or not? First of all, thank you. That was a really beautiful talk and um, very, very moving. Um, but I was really struck by that first image you had of sort of the light came on and you were here. So I was curious, like, was that something that happened when you were like an infant? A one-year-old, a two-year-old. Mm -hmm. How old do you think you were when you had that? I think I was actually about five years old. Okay. Yeah. And I want to say I was five because I know my, I think my dog Rosie was still alive at that time. And she, she passed away probably when I was around eight or nine, so... Yeah, I think I was about five years old.
Uh, thank you. Uh, it was a really moving, great talk. Thank you. Um, sorry, I'm really stuffy from the mask. Um, it's interesting. Uh, my first seven day session, I also went and totally unprepared. And also, Paul Haller was he's he was just he was just a monk at the time, and uh, he wasn't a teacher yet. But I remember he was he really made a huge impression on me at that. He just I remember just his. He's just such a powerful sitter, you know, just as, you know, as palatable, his presence. I just thought it was uh, interesting. Um, so my question is, um, how would you feel Jukai has changed your practice? Do you feel like there's been a before and afterwards? Do you feel it's more of a continuation or? You know, I think, I think when I did my Jukai, I was just so excited. I was so into Zen. I, I loved everything about it. I, I, I wanted to spend every day I could at the San Francisco Zen Center. Um, and honestly, I think I jumped in a little too early when I came to Jukai. I don't, I don't think I, I realized the, uh, the significance of taking the precepts. Of course, I studied them and read books and practiced with them, but I think it was quite intellectual for me at that time. But it has made me more committed, excuse me, to a certain extent. Um, I think the deeper that I grow into my practice in terms of being able to touch those places of my heart that still need some healing, that's when I feel really close to the Jukai ceremony. Um, Funny enough, the last Jukai that we did here with um, Larry and Kenny, um, and I felt more, more resonance then than I did with my own Jukai. Uh, I think I really felt the significance of what they were doing, of what they were partaking in. It was kind of like a, a second Jukai for myself in the background, you know. Yeah, I, I kind of teared up that day. It was, it was a special day. It was very special, yeah.
Well, thank you so much for that that talk. To, you know, the main thing I just want to say is, uh, you know, thank you for sharing. And, it, you know, it's just opening yourself up and hopefully you feel you have a group of people here that, you know, you can be comfortable and do that with. Um, you know, you, 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 you started by talking about this one question that you had, and I think you said other people may have their own questions. And I certainly, from a very young age, had a, had a question as, as well. You know, mine was a different one. But, so, but I'm, I'm curious whether at that young age where you started wondering about where do I go when I die, did, had there been any... Uh, deaths in your family or friends? Was there something that triggered it? Or what, where did that, do you know where, where that came from? I, I think it, it might have been around the time that my, my dog Rosie died. And um, I'm a dog lover. I, if I could, you know, I'd spend most of my day with dogs. To be quite honest, nothing against humans, but um, they speak my language, and uh, yeah, it's, it's quite strange. I, I I don't really remember there being a triggering event. I, it kind of came out of the blue. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't really. I I mean I think my. My great grandmother may have passed around that time as well, but I wasn't too too close to her. So, yeah. and uh, also, uh, did you do any hopping with the team? <laughs> I was really impressed, and now that you know, I, I've done a little bit of uh, uh, sports chiropractic. I'm I'm pretty worried about a lot of those people and their meniscus as they're doing the, the hopping. You know, <laughs> but. Um, I thought that was kind of interesting as well. And it, it was kind of another one of those things, you know, that because it's so interesting, it makes you want to look into it more, you know? You know the Beatles story, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. But is it working? It's working. Here we go. With the new batteries. Yeah, I was going to say nobody's ever ready, you know, for their first seven day session. I don't think I've ever heard of anybody who was ready for it. Because you can't, there's nothing you can do to get ready for it. And it's way more than you ever expected. But anyway, what I this image came to my mind about our practice when you were talking. I'd like to share it with you. And it's sort of, it's just a simple image that, um, you know, you, you, you just have to keep doing your laundry, right? Mm -hmm. 
you know, you don't get out of doing your laundry, your clothes get dirty and you have to wash them again. And then they're clean for a while, nice in the drawer. And you think I have now, I have clean clothes, but inevitably they get dirty. We have to go back. So somehow that image came to me, you know, when you're talk, you know, that, you know, and it's also like, you go in this direction and you can go so far in that direction, but then, you, you know, it's sort of like everything's, and I don't mean dirty, but, you know, it's just like, I need to, I need to refresh. I need yeah. to refresh again, you know? Yeah. And so then you do something and it seems like that's, that's what's coming to me from your talk is just this need to continually refresh and, uh, and, and, and begin again, yeah. begin again. So thank you very much. Wonderful talk. Maybe to um, any comments from Zoom. I don't know what time it. I don't have a watch. So. Five to, to, to nine. So um, we'll take one comment from Zoom from Richard. Yeah, I just wanted to say um, thank you for the talk. And uh, I don't know, I, I, I felt you uh, pulled my heart when you was talking about your love of movies because I'm a movie fan. And uh, <laughs> um, and uh, I think it's interesting because I, too, once upon a time got lost in the mysticism and uh, also did philosophy in college. So I really, uh, I really felt what you were saying there. And uh, I really liked how I think within your search that you were you were you were looking for answers to your questions but then you also I guess looked at the people around you and I guess you know as like sort of role models um in Buddhism and 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 tried to figure out you know how did they get there or or at least you admired them for certain qualities and um I I really uh, like that story and um yeah, thank you very much for for sharing with us and uh, and uh, yes, uh, like most of the people in the book study, you know, when I, when I hear you know fellow book study members uh, giving their way seeking mind, I uh, like you when you were giddy going to the um, the Zen center. I don't know way seeking mind talks now. Like my my giddy point, I said, oh, someone's sharing, and I'm going to learn <laughs> something new and interesting and personal about their practice that is also going to help me too. So thank you very much. Thank you.